Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord held a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was, on the, or was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. That's the word of God. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, let me add my welcome to, to Duncan's. Um, as Johnny mentioned there, my name's... Uh, Duncan mentioned, rather. My name's Johnny. Uh, I'm not confused about that. Uh, my name is Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the, of the leadership team here. And it is great uh, to have you with us uh, this morning for a Sunday morning service. As, as Duncan's mentioned, and as we've sung, um, we're going to be starting this morning a short series in the book of Jonah. And thinking particularly about Jonah chapter 1 together over the next few minutes, which uh, has been very ably read for us. Thank you to Peter for that. But before we think about it together for a few minutes, uh, let me ask for God's help of us. Let me pray. Jonah 2 verse 1 says this. 
I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Our God and Father, we praise you this morning that you are one who hears and who answers prayers. And ask now that you would please hear and answer our prayer this morning. That as we study Jonah together, we would please see you as you really are. As the real and living and mighty God. And would live in response to that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, some of you might have heard of a book called The 100. It was published in the late 1970s. And um, the author's objective in the book was to list whom he thought were the 100 most influential people in all of human history. Uh, The book uh, isn't especially unique. Uh, Quite a few of them have been published over the years, but, but it was quite a popular book at the time. It sold tens of thousands of copies. And it actually caused a bit of a stir. As you might expect, it included a fairly varied list of people. There were uh, scientists and explorers and philosophers and musicians, uh, alongside some fairly notable religious leaders. But the reason the book caused a stir was the author's choice of the three most influential people in history. Because rather than topping the list, as, as many people would expect, Jesus actually came in third He was outranked by Isaac Newton in number two spot and the prophet Muhammad who topped the list. And you might well be surprised by that, as many others were at the time, perhaps even a bit outraged. I would strongly disagree with with it and with lots of his other conclusions too, if I'm honest. And yet, whilst like me, you might well disagree with his conclusions, there was an interesting logic to the author's placement of Jesus at number three of the world's most influential figures. Here's how he explained his decision to rank Jesus in third place. If the teachings of Jesus were widely followed, I would have no hesitation in placing Jesus first in this book, wrote the author. But the truth is that they're not widely followed. Even Jesus' most distinctive teaching remains an intriguing but often untried suggestion. The reason the author placed Jesus as number three rather than number one wasn't that Jesus wasn't a significant figure in history, a great figure for that matter. No, the reason was that whilst he was and is, whilst he's very well known and lots of people claim to follow him, well, there's often a disconnect between what people believe, what they declare to be true about him even, and how they behave in response. His teaching, in the words of the author, often remains untried. Now, it wasn't just a a pop history author from the 1970s who identified that as a possibility. Jesus himself identified it too. He warned that there was a danger of professing to be a follower of his, but of not living as though you were of saying the right kinds of things about God, perhaps even kind of assenting to them intellectually, but in your heart, being unmoved by him. And I wonder if that might be an idea that resonates with some of us here this morning, the disconnect between intellectual assent to the Christian message and the heartfelt desire to follow it. And the reason I mention that is that that idea is a key idea in the book of Jonah. 
As I mentioned, we're starting this short series in the book of Jonah this morning. We'll work through it uh, over the course of the next uh, three Sunday mornings after this one. It's a wonderful little book, and it is larger than life, isn't it? We've seen that even in chapter one, which is almost like a a, a sort of greatest hits, if you like. We see the storm uh, and the sailors and the grumpy prophet, and even what Jonah's perhaps best known for, his sidekick, the great big fish, ends the chapter. But behind what is a very vivid story, one we often think of as being a child's story, is a very searching message indeed. A message about the danger of that disconnect between what we say we believe and how we are moved to respond. We'll see that later in the book in in, in chapter 4. Jonah's problem in chapter 4 isn't a matter of of, of belief or disbelief. It isn't that he, he doesn't think God is able to rescue people. Jonah knows fine well that he can. He just doesn't want him to. And we see the same sort of idea this morning. The disconnect between stated belief and heart response. It's made abundantly clear just what Jonah's stated beliefs are in chapter 1. I wonder if you spotted that. Chapter 1, verse 9. Jonah says this, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah identifies himself as someone who fears the Lord. And by fear, he isn't just talking about a sort of, of terror, but about a right sort of reverence and awe for God. And yet we see from his behavior in chapter 1 and throughout the book, in fact, that his money is most definitely not where his mouth is. He fears God in words only. Now, the, the, the book of Jonah will give us a window into two of its main characters' hearts. That's one of the ways, uh, main ways in which we are taught uh, through the book of Jonah by observing what moves the main characters. I've already introduced you to one of those, to Jonah's heart. It's a heart which is hard, a heart which doesn't match up with the outside, with his words. But we'll see, too, God's heart. God's heart, which is full of compassion for people. And those two windows into those two characters' hearts, well, they'll also function as a sort of mirror for our own. The big question we'll be forced to reckon with this week and in the weeks to come is if we claim to follow the God of the Bible, will we share his heart for the world or will we share Jonah's? Now, that's where we're heading over the next Uh, Well, three weeks after this one, and it's where we're going this morning too. We'll think about that under our first heading. Thank you very much. Jonah fears the creator God in words only. Now, the book of Jonah isn't the first time that we meet this Jonah in the Bible. We first meet him as a a prophet in the book of 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings, Jonah ministered during a, a bit of an upturn in the fortunes of God's people. And we know that he he therefore had a a relatively fruitful sort of ministry as one of God's prophets. And we know too, even from what we've seen this morning, that his theology, his understanding of, of God, of who God is, well, it's sort of orthodox. Read with me again that verse, verse 9. I am a Hebrew, says Jonah, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
He identifies himself as, as a Hebrew, as one of God's people. And for Jonah, that isn't an ethnicity issue. It's a belonging issue. He gives an explanation of, of what it means. He says he fears the Lord, Israel's God, Yahweh. That's the word he uses. And not just Israel's God, Jonah recognizes that Israel's God is also the God who rules the world. He's the God, he says, of heaven. The one who made the sea and the land. And so it's fairly clear that Jonah has a, has a good track record as a prophet. And that theologically, well, he's pretty much on point. And so we might think we've got a sense of how things are likely to go as we start reading verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1. Read with me again, verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The book begins, verse 1, with God's command to go to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was roughly in the same place as as present-day Mosul in northern Iraq. I want you to imagine for a moment we were to to organize as a church a mission trip uh, going to Mosul. I want you to to consider how you think the the sign-ups would be for that kind of mission trip. I'm guessing it would be fairly low because it it isn't the most attractive of places now. And um, we'll hear more about Nineveh in a couple of weeks' time. But it wasn't actually especially attractive in Jonah's day either. And yet nevertheless... From what we know about Jonah, well, we're still probably expecting him to up sticks and go. He's a prophet with a largely positive track record in ministry. He's a prophet with orthodox views on who God is, at least so he says, all of which makes the rest of the chapter a bit of a surprise. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Instead of answering God's call and going to Nineveh, as we might expect, Jonah goes to a place called Tarshish. Now, Nineveh was a long way northeast. It was inland from Israel. And it was a bit of disagreement about exactly where Tarshish was. But to be honest, we don't really need to know the details of the geography to understand the point. Jonah heads west. He heads out to sea. He's going in the opposite direction from the way God has called him to go. And not only is he going in the opposite direction as far as a compass is concerned, he's going in the opposite direction as far as God is concerned. Notice with me, verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And in case we miss it, again, at the end of verse 3, he is traveling away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's intention is to run away from God. And isn't just the fact that he runs away that the evidence is there's a bit of a problem in Jonah. It's how he plans to get away. Notice Jonah says, verse 9, that he fears the God who made the sea. And how is he traveling in order to get away from that same God? He hops into a boat on the sea. Now, we might laugh at that or or think that Jonah's maybe a bit slow on the uptake. But the point, you see, is not that Jonah's stupid. That's not the point at all. 
The point is that there's a disconnect. He claims to fear the Lord, but by his behavior, he says he does anything but. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jonah's often understood to be a jolly and, and, and sort of entertaining kid's story, and it is a wonderful, wonderful narrative as you read through it. And yet the message of Jonah, it is very penetrating indeed. Because you see, it is absolutely possible to share in Jonah syndrome. Not by physically running away from God necessarily in, in, in quite such a dramatic way as Jonah does. But by saying we believe in God as the king of all creation. The God who is sovereign over all things. And yet behaving as though he is anything but. Now we can do that in in lots of different ways. The the author of that book, The 100, suggested one of them actually. He said that, that Christians are people who often claim to follow Jesus. And one of Jesus' key commands is that we love other people and love one another. And he says we often don't do that. And suggests that might be evidence of that disconnect. Of the fact that Jesus doesn't have the influence over believers' lives. But another way. One which is perhaps most in keeping with the message of Jonah is when it comes to telling people about Jesus. And to get to the nub of that, let me ask a fairly direct question of all of us. If you're a Christian this morning, why is it that you don't tell people about Jesus? Why is it that you don't tell people about Jesus? Now that might sound like a bit of an accusation. I promise you it isn't meant to be. It's a genuine question. I want you to reflect for a moment on your own experience of what stops you from speaking to friends, neighbours, colleagues, family members about Jesus. See, if you're a Christian, then you're someone who has been rescued by God and someone who has submitted to his rule over your life. And we know, don't we, that one of Jesus' commands to his people is to tell other people about him. Not to go to Nineveh necessarily like Jonah, but to go to the ends of the earth, he says, making disciples of all nations. Now, I'd be surprised if if you've been a Christian for any length of time and had yet to gather that that's part of what it looks like to be a Christian. And so if those two things are true, if we know on one hand that God is the powerful creator God, and we know secondly that he calls us as his people to tell others about him, why is it that we don't do it? You might well be able to think of of lots of reasons from your own life. You might be thinking of of some moments now of of opportunities to speak that you perhaps haven't taken. The potential damage to your reputation, the the, the threat it might have posed to your relationships, even perhaps to career prospects or to family dynamics. You might well be able to think of others. But in Jonah 1, there is a key reason for that kind of disconnect. And it stands behind every other reason, I think. It is this, our genuine view of God is far too small. Our view of what he's really like is just far too small. It's not that we don't know in our heads that he's the creator God necessarily as a sort of intellectual idea. Jonah himself knew that very well. He could trot off a fairly comprehensive summary. But you see, when the rubber hits the road, when things get real in life, We tend to behave as though he's much less powerful, much less in control, much less God than he really is. 
Now, what makes me think that that's the main point in Jonah chapter 1? Well, because there's a disconnect clearly, patently clear in Jonah's life. But I wonder if you notice that there's no such disconnect in the other main human characters in Jonah chapter 1. In the sailors. Let's think about them under our second heading this morning. The sailors who know little of God come to fear him in words and in action. Now, um, uh, the sailors tend not to play such a big part in the story in children's Bibles or perhaps in our imaginations. They're possibly a bit less charismatic than the great big fish. Uh, And we aren't told a huge amount about them by way of background. We know, firstly, that they are sailors or mariners. That kind of goes with the title. And we find out that they each had their own God. Verse 5, they aren't Israelites like Jonah, but each follows their own God. They are what might be called pagan. Apart from that, though, the only real detail we're given about them is that they are fearful. When have you noticed that? Three times through chapter one, they're described as being fearful. And I wonder if you notice, too, that they're increasingly fearful as the chapter progresses. Firstly, notice that they fear the storm. Read with me verse four again. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Now, if you've ever been on a boat in in choppy waters, it isn't hard to understand why in ancient cultures the sea was a picture, a, a sort of metaphor for chaos. For the forces or the powers in the world that people just can't seem to control. And uh, in Jonah chapter 1, these sailors are walking, talking evidence of just that. See, this is their job. They're professional mariners. And yet they're terrified of a raging storm, aren't they? And although they don't know it quite yet, just notice where that storm, where the cause of their fear comes from. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The God of Jonah chapter 1 has such power that he can throw a storm. can hurl it like you and I would throw a tennis ball. They don't quite know God yet. But the sailors are genuinely fearful of his power. That's the first fear. Secondly, they fear Jonah's disobedience of that powerful God. The story progresses, and the sailors realize that something is amiss. There's a reason that this particular storm has come upon them in this particular way. And after drawing lots, verse 7, they find out that the culprit is Jonah. At which point, Jonah is given the third degree. Read in with me from verse 8 again. Then the sailors said to Jonah... Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now notice that the sailors aren't just afraid like they were in verse 5. 
by verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid. And the storm itself doesn't seem to have changed a whole lot between verse 5 and verse 10, as far as we can tell. So what is it that's making them more anxious by the time we hit verse 10? Well, they now know that the God whom Jonah has thumbed his nose at is running away from, he is the God of land and sea. They're fearful of Jonah's disobedience of that powerful God. Verse 10, what is this that you have done? Or in other words, what on earth were you thinking, Jonah? That's the second instance of fear, fearing Jonah's disobedience of his powerful God. And by the end of the unit, thirdly and finally, they fear the powerful God himself. After some toing and froing with Jonah, they finally agree to throw him overboard. Verse 16, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. It is interesting to know what it is that causes their fear to to sort of peak. It isn't the storm. It isn't even Jonah's disobedience of that powerful God. It's the calm that causes them to fear exceedingly. The calm which they immediately attribute to that powerful God. And the result, you see, is that there is no disconnect between what they believe what they say they believe, and how they behave. Verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Can you see, unlike Jonah, the sailors know very little of God. All they know is that he really is who he purports to be. He is the powerful creator God. And so they come to fear him to genuinely reverence or revere him, to, to behold him in awe, both in their words and in their actions. And if you're listening this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as, as being a Christian, perhaps, I wonder what you make of all of that. In particular, I wonder what you've made of the kind of God we've been thinking about together this morning. I'm guessing that quite a number of folks in our culture are under the impression that, that Christianity is, is, is a bit flimsy or, or, or sort of weak-looking, partly because it seems to be in decline in the West, or at the very least in Scotland. And perhaps you tend to think that that's a reflection of the kind of God Christians follow. Uh, that he's sort of worked for people in days gone by, but the Christian faith and the Christian God just isn't fit for the modern world. Well, if that sounds anything like you, Let me just please suggest that the God you might well have rejected is far too small compared to the real deal. We see something of what he's really like in Jonah chapter 1. He's not time limited or, or, or parochial. No, he is the creator God of the universe. He is one who has unrivaled power. And he is actively involved in his world. He is not to be trifled with. And so as he calls everyone, everywhere, to genuinely bow the knee before him, to submit ourselves to him and his rule over our lives, well, that isn't a call that we can really afford to ignore, is it? Let me encourage you, please, if you have already rejected him, to have a rethink. 
to think about him as he really is, not the watered-down version you might previously have dismissed. But there is a bit of a wrinkle in what I've said so far, because I'm conscious that it might well have sounded as though God is, in Jonah chapter 1, like a, a big sort of powerful boss who, who, who tells Christians what to do, like he sends out memos to us, commanding us to do various tasks. And one of those tasks is to tell other people about him, and so we jolly well better go and do it, or else. And we have been given a sense of God's power and control of what we've thought about together this morning. But the dynamic in Jonah 1 isn't of an authoritarian ruler calling the shots, and of his subjects just doing what they're told. God himself, this mighty and powerful God of all creation, well, he himself is committed to his name being known to the ends of the earth. And even to using his people to do that. Let's think about that under our final heading. The God who is sovereign is committed to saving people. Now, uh, it isn't all that uncommon, I understand, for TV production companies to film alternate endings to some TV programs, mainly to make sure that the big ending to a tense series, a long-awaited ending to a tense series, isn't leaked to the world, because that would sort of spoil the surprise. Uh, And I wonder if it could be possible that Jonah could have had an alternative ending if God had decided to do things differently. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, And Jonah refuses to go, and we all know what happens next. But after Jonah refused to go, God could well have done things differently had he so chosen. He could very easily have drawn stumps, decided that it just wasn't worth the hassle of sending someone all that way to Nineveh. If even the best and the brightest like Jonah weren't up for going, well, to be honest, that's probably a bit too much of a stretch. And that could be the end of the story, couldn't it? It would end after verse 3. It wouldn't exactly be a page-turner, but it could be how he decided to end things. Perhaps instead, hearing Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, God could have smite him right there and then. He has power enough to throw a storm on the sea, doesn't he? Surely he has power to strike a disobedient prophet down in his tracks. But he doesn't do either of those things, does he? It's clear that he is a powerful, mighty God and that he's not to be trifled with. And yet he remains committed to getting his message to people. And even to using Jonah to do that. And there are quiet hints of his commitment to that all through Jonah chapter 1. Hints on the grand scale. It's God, remember, who hurled the storm on the sea and brought Jonah to the end of himself. But even hints on a much smaller scale. Right down in the details. As the sailors try to work out where this problem's coming from and decide to draw lots. And who draws the short straw? But Jonah. And even in that small detail, there's a quiet sense that God is is working in the details. He's in control of everything. Perhaps the biggest indicator, though, of God's commitment to rescuing people and even to using Jonah to do that is that even in running away, Jonah achieves God's purposes. Did you notice that? That's the second big irony in Jonah chapter 1. God calls Jonah to go to pagan people and tell them about God. No way, says Jonah. I'm not doing that. And he runs away. And what does he end up doing instead? Well, he ends up on a boat 
telling a group of pagan people about God. And how does the chapter end? Well, with those people coming to fear him. See, God isn't a big bad boss. He is more committed to rescuing people, far more compassionate than you and I are. And he's even committed to using us and to helping us to do so. And I wonder if you can see the implications of that for for us. Because you see, reading through the book of Jonah ought to, to hold that mirror up to each one of us. We're right to be asking ourselves all along whether we might be Jonah to a greater or lesser degree. Whether there's a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we behave in light of that. Whether we say we follow God but actually refuse to do what he would have us do. And yet, if you do see yourself in Jonah, the message of Jonah chapter 1 is not, guys, get your act together and stop being such a big fearty. Nor is it to say, don't you know what's at stake for the people you haven't told about Jesus yet? That isn't the message of chapter 1 at least. No, what Jonah 1 would ask us, I think, is how big is the God you really follow? He claims to be the God who made the sea and the land, and he's proven that he is. The one who can throw a storm like a tennis ball and make it stop in a heartbeat. The one who has committed himself to rescuing people to the ends of the earth and to using people like you to do it. And if that is the God you follow, if he really is that big and he is that good, well, why on earth would you not follow him? Would you not go where he calls you to go? Not to Nineveh, but to your office, to your staff room, to your neighborhood, to your friendship circle, even to your dinner table. Will you go with the good news of the God of all things who is committed to rescuing people, so committed in fact that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and rise again? To make it possible. The God who is sovereign, who is powerful beyond compare, He is committed to rescuing people. And He calls us as His people to be part of that, to go and tell. And the question for each one of us this morning is Will you share His heart for the world? And will you therefore go? Let me ask Him for His help to answer that with a great big yes this morning. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for Jonah chapter 1. Thank you for the reminder that you are the mighty creator God, the maker of the sea and the dry land. And we thank you too for the prompt to consider that you are compassionate extraordinarily compassionate for the world you've made. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that you would please help us to know that such that we would live like it's true. Give us hearts that would long to tell others about who you are and what you're like. Would call them to trust in you too. And for any here who have yet to trust in you, Lord, we do ask that in your kindness you would please act to bring them alive to your good and right rule. That they too would know and love and follow you as you really are. 
We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.